Welcome to the Protestants and Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Nap Nasworth. I've been exploring the intersection of churches, Christians, theology, and public life for over 20 years as both a professor and a journalist. But I still have lots of questions. I invite you to continue learning with me as I interview interesting voices in this field. Evangelicals support Trump, oppose Biden. How often do we hear that simplistic storyline? When we dig deeper, however, it's a lot more complicated. One issue that highlights this well is immigration on opposition to DACA, family separation, an almost complete shutdown of the refugee program, and a host of other immigration policies. Many evangelical groups and leaders either oppose those policies or work to alleviate the unjust effects of those policies. With the change in the presidency and Senate control, these evangelicals are hoping for less cruel, more just immigration policies and legislation. To talk about this, my guest is Matthew Sorens, who is U.S. Director of Church Mobilization for World Relief, a global humanitarian organization that aids refugees. And he's also National Coordinator of the Evangelical Immigration Table, a coalition of evangelical groups that advocates for bipartisan and biblically-based solutions to immigration reform. He is also the co-author, with Jenny Yang, of Welcoming the the Stranger, Justice, Compassion, and Truth in the Immigration Debate. A revised and expanded edition of that book was published in 2018. Matthew Sorens, welcome to the Protestants and Politics podcast. Thanks, Nap. It's great to be with you. So uh, before we get into the politics, uh, just tell us a little bit about the work of World Relief, and, and especially with regard to refugees. Sure. Yeah. So World Relief uh, has existed since the 1940s. Really, we we began as the War Relief Commission um, from the National Association of Evangelicals in response to the displacement crisis in Europe after World War II. And in time, that kind of evolved from war relief into world relief. So we've had refugees and displacement issues that are, you know, the center of what we do, as well as local churches at the center of what we do really since our beginning. And then in the late 1970s, we became one of what are now nine national agencies that partner with the U.S. State Department to resettle refugees. So the State Department, along with other parts of the U.S. government, identifies refugees abroad, determines who will be allowed to come to the United States. That's out of our hands. But from the moment they arrive, that refugee family is basically assigned to one of those nine agencies. And if it's World Relief, we are there with our staff and often with a team from a local church that of volunteers to welcome that family into the country and to walk alongside them for at least, you know, the first several months that they're adjusting to life in a new country. So this is these issues of refugees and immigration, I know that they are political issues, but they have never for us at World Relief been primarily political issues. Uh, there's been ministry issues that are motivated by the way we read the Bible. And I, in some ways, I think only in the last few years, especially have refugees become so politically charged other immigration issues, that's been true for longer, but it's still true that our focus is really starts with how do we apply these commands of, of the Bible in our context in a country where we are blessed, I believe, with a large number of, of immigrants. So could you just give us a sense of what it was like just during the Trump years to be working for an evangelical organization that partners with the government to aid refugees and just to 
to work in that environment? What was that like? Yeah, the last, you know, four years, almost to the date, have been um, really challenging. Um, It was one week into the Trump administration that the president signed an executive order shutting down all refugee resettlement for a number of months, or at least that was what the order initially said. There were some court challenges after that. And then indefinitely barring refugees from um, particular places. And, um, you know, that was how things started. And it didn't necessarily get better over four years. Every year, the refugee resettlement ceiling, which is under the authority of the Refugee Act of 1980, something the president has the authority to set, was lowered. So it was 110,000 set by President Obama at the beginning of the fiscal year when President Trump came into office. He immediately lowered it and lowered it the next year, the next year down to well, at the moment we're recording this, it's still 15,000 set by President Trump last um, fall, which is a historic low for the refugee resettlement program. Just for historical context, when President Carter signed the Refugee Act in 1980, he set the refugee resettlement ceiling above 230,000. And um, President Reagan set the ceiling, you know, uh, well above 100,000 at various at, at, at at one point, uh, same with President George H.W. Bush. So we have a history of resettling a pretty significant number of refugees. And that's gone to really a decimation of the refugee resettlement program and, and to that infrastructure to assist refugees. And at the same time, of course, we've seen other policies that have focused on other categories of immigrants. So uh, individuals who are seeking asylum, that's someone who was not identified abroad and brought to the U.S. as a refugee, but uh, who basically showed up on their own, whether by reaching the U.S. border or by coming on a temporary visa, and professes to meet that definition legally of a refugee, having fled persecution, whether for their faith or their political opinion, their national origin, or another reason under the law. That's become a much more difficult process in the last several years. And um, I think the other big change we've seen in relates to the category of immigrants known as dreamers. So immigrants who were brought here before you know, before they were adults as children who were undocumented either because they were brought here unlawfully or their temporary visa they came on expired. And then um, under the Obama administration, they were given deferred action for childhood arrivals, DACA, which basically meant they could work lawfully, have a temporary reprieve from deportation that was re- renewable. The, but, uh, the I'm sorry, the Trump administration tried to end that in 2017 the courts got involved and it was basically stalled through most of the Trump administration. Uh, as we're speaking in early February, um, the Supreme Court has left that program in place for the moment, but there are ongoing legal challenges because the Supreme Court left it in place on kind of procedural grounds, but there are still ongoing legal challenges to that. And we're very much hoping that the Congress, which is the only uh, part of our government that can actually create a, a path to permanent legal status, will step in quickly. Yeah, that must have been so challenging to work in that environment. So, I mean, how did you think about how or how did World Relief think about, you know, how their relationship with the Trump administration, how how you would manage that, given that, you know, you don't want to, like, cut ties because, you you know, you need to have some sort of uh, relationship, ongoing relationship. But at the same time, the administration is so hostile to so much of the work that you're trying to do. So, you know, how... how What's your approach in that whole environment? Yeah, it was, I mean, that was definitely a challenge. Um, You know, I think what we decided early on, and this wasn't necessarily a new position, we just never had to step into it so directly, was that we were going to be respectful of institutions and and of leaders whom, you know, we believe God has ordained human government, but we were going to speak out against policies that we felt like were 
inconsistent with biblical values. Um, so, you know, we had to put out press releases pretty early on in the Trump administration, and, and we were really grateful. We had a lot of support for that. I mean, we put an, uh, an ad in the Washington Post, you know, within a few weeks of that first executive order shutting down refugee resettlement that was signed by a really broad range of evangelical Christian leaders, um, some of whom probably are, were supportive of, of President Trump overall, but were you know, took exception with his refugee and immigration policies, others of whom would never have been supportive of President Trump's candidacy, I suspect. But, um, you know, we thought it was really important that we speak out on some of those policies. And of course, not, you know, not every evangelical Christian agreed with us on that. Um, but we really wanted to say, what are the biblical principles that are guiding us? And, you know, again, that those were the same principles that were guiding us since the 70s in terms of refugee resettlement. The, what changed, it, it wasn't just that we went from a Democrat to a Republican because, you know, in, in fact, more refugees, I believe, have been resettled under Republican administrations than under Democratic administrations. The Reagan administration, both Bush administrations were very pro-refugee, um, pro-immigrant. I mean, President Bush, uh, George W. Bush supported roughly the same immigration reform that President Obama supported a few years later. And unfortunately, from my perspective, both of them failed to get it through uh, the U.S. Uh, the U.S. House of Representatives. But you know, the Trump administration clearly was different than the Bush administration, or the Reagan administration, or the Obama administration, and that meant occasionally, um, you know, feeling like a little bit like this. You know, it became almost an oxymoron to be evangelicals who love refugees, um, or at least that was, I think, the public perception. I don't think that was ever fully true. I mean, even. Even as we saw some public opinion shift among white evangelicals in particular against refugee resettlement, you still had a pretty strong minority who were supportive. I mean, I think the Public Religion Research Institute's poll had it, you know, roughly 40-60 among white evangelicals. So 60% were opposed, which was kind of shocking to us to see most white evangelicals say that they would support a ban on refugee resettlement, especially when, you know, I, I can only presume those people didn't understand that so many of those refugees are actually persecuted Christians fleeing because of their faith in Jesus. But you always had a significant minority who were supportive. And, and we have always had such amazing support from local church partners and you know volunteers who are primarily coming to us from their local churches, from donors who are largely um, evangelical Christians and probably mostly white evangelical Christians. So there's, there's always been, I guess I might say a remnant of strong support, but also a lot of opposition, even from within our, our own uh, Christian tradition. We're recording this episode on February 3rd, which marks the two weeks since Joe Biden became president. What changes have you seen so far with regard to immigration and refugee policies? Yeah, there's been um, a lot. And more than actual changes, there's been a lot of sort of shifts in direction. So I hope that we'll see some more actual changes in the coming days and weeks. But on day one, the president um, signed a series of executive orders that undid a number of of, of Trump administration policy, executive policies. Uh, President Biden also announced a bill he's proposing to Congress that would be a, a broad immigration bill, including a, a legalization process, uh, both for, for dreamers, those immigrants who were brought as children, but also for the broader, you know, roughly 11 million immigrants who are unlawfully present in the United States. I would say that I have yet to see bill text for that proposal. So I'd say our response at World Relief has been this is seems positive, but we would, you know, we'll wait to see the details till we can comment on every element of what that proposal will mean. And, and frankly, if it ha it's great to propose a bill, what's much more important is 
is there a willingness to negotiate on a bipartisan basis to actually get something through Congress, um, which I genuinely believe is possible. I mean, I, I've been at this for a while. I remember when in 2006, uh, with President Bush's support, a bipartisan bill went through the U.S. Senate. Uh, that included an earned legalization process with, you know, with the payment of a fine. So it wasn't an amnesty. There was a, a, but there was a way for immigrants in the country unlawfully to make things right. And it was paired with border security funding and reforms to the immigrant visa system to make it easier to immigrate legally. And then I remember very well in 2013, I was even much more involved when a similar bill went through the U.S. Senate with 68 votes. So a pretty significant majority. And what was the problem in both those cases, the Senate passed a bill, the president was ready to sign the bill, but the U.S. House of Representatives never voted on the bill. And so I, you know, I do think we're in a different situation now in that presumably if the U.S. Senate passed a similar bill once again, the House, you know, Speaker Pelosi would probably call that bill to a vote. I would hope she would and be very upset if she didn't. And, you know, President Biden has made pretty clear he would want to sign that bill. So I'm not I think, you know, people who've been through this for decades and seen it not work are kind of perpetually pessimistic. But if I wasn't optimistic, I couldn't stay at this work. And I I believe it's so important that the church be out front of that, as they have been, you know, especially in 2013. There was a lot of evangelical advocacy around that that Senate bill, which none of us thought was a perfect bill, but it was, you know, it was a good faith bipartisan effort that frankly had it become law, would have saved us so much heartache in the last seven or eight years. And I think that that's possible again. And I'm certainly praying that, you know, we'll see evangelical Christians really take a lead in providing both the political support and, and cover for a broad immigration reform that would, yes, include ensuring secure borders and ensure that our immigration system is functional going forward, but also have some sort of an earned legalization process where, where people could uh, get right with the law and eventually be able to earn citizenship if they want to work for that. So there was a four-page fact sheet about that immigration bill that's been released, even though we don't have the wording of the bill yet. I just want to highlight a few of the things that are in that. Uh, There's an earned path to citizenship for undocumented immigrants. Uh, It prioritizes keeping families together. Uh, There's funding for refugee integration, uh, enhanced technology for border screenings, for four billion dollars to address the causes of immigration from El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras, and support for asylum seekers and other vulnerable populations. There's a bunch of other stuff in there, but I'll link to the fact sheet in the uh, podcast description. So I know you 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 want to see what the wording actual wording of the bill is first before you decide you know whether it's something to support, but just based upon what you see so far in just the fact sheet, do you anticipate that the evangelical immigration table will support this bill? I mean, what we've said at the evangelical immigration table, and so that's speaking beyond myself, but for the other leaders of uh, evangel- of our leadership organization, so that's the, the National Association of Evangelicals, the Council for Christian Colleges and Universities, the uh, Southern Baptist Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, the National Latino Evangelical Coalition, several others. Um, what we've said is this is definitely a good start. It is really encouraging to see President Biden, you know, prioritize immigration issues so much to make it a day one priority. Um, do I think that that outline of the bill will it be what comes back to President Biden's desk for signature? I think that's frankly very unlikely just as a pragmatic measure. I think that there's 
you know, some additional elements that will probably need to be worked into it to get the support that it would be necessary, which, you know, if President Biden can hold on to all the Democrats in the Senate, he would need at least 10 Republicans in the Senate. So I think that there is, I mean, we've seen evidence that there's some willingness to negotiate in good faith on a bipartisan basis. Uh, that might start with something smaller, like something like the DREAM Act, which would address those, you know, just that subcategory of immigrants who are brought as children, which are, I mean, the level of public support for that is super high from both, you know, almost all Democrats, but also the majority of Republicans and the majority of white evangelicals and, you know, pretty much every other subgroup. Um, so I think that, uh, you know, it might be that we see this kind of come through in pieces. It might th- be a, a broad piece. If it is pieces, we won't be stopping with one piece. We'll be continuing to advocate that this this problem needs a solution and now is the time to do it. And um, you know, so I, I'm really encouraged that the president has made this a priority. I'll be even more encouraged if I see him follow through on this and sit down with Senate senators from both parties to say, how can we forge a consensus that we can get the votes necessary to pass? Yeah, so like you, I was struck by the similarities between this four-page fact sheet and the bill that was passed by the Senate during the Obama administration. But w- one of the differences, I think, uh, you know, it's going to be a big difference and probably a big uh, part of uh, the debate as it goes through Congress is whether there will be a path to citizenship or a path to legal status. Mm-hmm. Um, so if the, if that's the compromise that comes out of this, no citizenship, but legal status, you know, is, is that an acceptable compromise in your view? You know, I, I definitely personally would prefer that there be an ultimate possibility of citizenship. Um, and I'll tell you the reason why is not because I, it's actually less to me about immigrants themselves, some of whom desperately want to be citizens, but some of whom don't care that much about, you know, the naturalization process. They just want to be safe. I think it's important for, for the unity of our country that we wouldn't have this category of people who are permanently barred from being full participants in our society. I think that if we want to encourage people to integrate into what it is to be America, we need to give them the the way to become an American. Now, that doesn't have to be an easy process. And I think for me, the bigger question than is it legal status or citizenship is what's the process to get to legal status? And, you know, sort of we talk about a path to citizenship, sort of how arduous is that path? So the, the Biden administration's proposal is, I believe, an eight year path to citizenship. The 2013 bill would have been, if I recall correctly, a 13-year path before anyone undocumented, um, I should say, with the exception of dreamers, who I think had a special category, as they do under this proposal. But for kind of a normal person who came as an adult would have a, under the Biden proposal, it's eight years before they could qualify to apply for citizenship. Under the Senate compromise in 2013, it was 13 years. You know, I'm, you know, coming at this from a Christian perspective, I'm not going to tell you that either eight years or 13 years is somehow the God's will hidden in the old Testament somewhere that if we, you know, like there's not a right answer to that question, but I, it's a prudential judgment of what's an appropriate level of penalty for, you know, acknowledging that people have violated the law. And I think for a lot of evangelicals, and we've seen this in polling, um, certainly, you know, most white evangelicals do not support the idea of amnesty where it's just people broke the law, but we're going to forgive and forget that offense. Here's your citizenship. You know, amnesty is from the same root word as amnesia, like forgetting, dismissing the offense that there was against the law. So, I mean, I've seen polling that, you know, white evangelicals in particular are pretty strongly opposed to amnesty, but the same polls will find that a majority of white evangelicals will support 
an earned legalization process if it involves some element of a penalty. So basically a fine. And that was an element of the 2013 bill. It was an element of the 2006 bill that passed the Senate when President Bush was pushing for it. Um, I Frankly, I don't know if that's an element of what President Biden is proposing. And it might come down to semantics, whether it's a fine or a, a fee. I mean, every immigration benefit has some element of a processing fee that the applicant is required to pay um, because our federal immigration service, USCIS, is funded by fees, not by taxpayer dollars. But I think that element and even just how it's messaged will be important. Um, We've had a lot of really broad evangelical support. And again, from across that sort of spectrum, from never Trumpers to very much supportive of the Trump presidency, um, from people who have said, we need a restitution-based immigration reform, um, where it's not an amnesty because there's a penalty that people would pay. But that penalty doesn't have to be mass deportation, um, which would inherently divide many, many, many families because, you know, most of these undocumented immigrants have been here 10, 15, 20 years, have children who are born here who are U.S. citizens in many cases. So it, it gets very, very complicated on a humanitarian level, not to mention an economic level, if, if there was a really a serious effort to deport all those people. So what we've said is the status quo is not acceptable. Neither is a mass deportation and neither is an amnesty, but a restitution-based reform where people would come forward, pay a fine for having violated the law, And then, of course, they'd go through a criminal background check. If they committed serious crimes, they would be deported. But the vast majority of undocumented immigrants have not uh, committed serious crimes. They've violated an immigration law, either by crossing the border or overstaying a temporary visa. And they could basically make amends for that violation of law with that payment of a fine. And then have a sort of a temporary legal status. Um, Eventually, they qualify for permanent legal status. And eventually... If they could meet the normal qualifications for naturalization, which is five years of permanent legal status and good moral character and passing a test of English and civics and history, they could apply for naturalization. And I've found that most evangelicals, including kind of conservative white evangelicals, think that's a pretty good plan. And I think one of the challenges is most of them don't realize that that's the plan that was actually on the table in 2013 and in 2006, or some version of that at least. Yeah, it's it's just sort of the natural compromise that's has been around for a long time and and that just makes a lot of sense i I was so disappointed recently when i saw marco rubio call it amnesty call it based upon the fact sheet when it's clearly in there that there's a bunch of hoops you have to jump through in order to gain get to to citizenship uh you know it's not amnesty and i remember back in the obama administration when he helped pass the bill that's very similar to the same bill. And he was the, he went on talk shows and defended it and say against the critics who were saying this isn't amnesty, you know, and now, now he's on the other side with the critics who are calling it amnesty, even though clearly that's not what it is. Right. Well, I'd like to give Senator Rubio the benefit of the doubt that he doesn't know the details probably any more than I do. Although he, I I don't know if he's talking to Senator Menendez who apparently is going to introduce this legislation, but Um, I hope that Senator Rubio and Senator Scott, also from Florida, and, you know, and every other Republican senator will, um, you know, if they don't like what the the Biden administration has proposed, come with a counteroffer and not just say no. But I mean, in 2013, Senator Rubio was, I think, really heroic in forging a compromise. I know that he didn't love every element of the final bill. And I know that my Senator Dick Durbin didn't love every element of it either. He thought it was too much money for border security, but he voted for it. And so did, um, you know, the super majority of U.S. senators. 
And that's the kind of consensus building we're going to need to see if we're ever going to solve this problem on both sides of the aisle. And I will say, I'm not confident that the Democrats of 2021 are willing to make the same compromises they were in 2013 either. And I mean, that concerns me as well. Like it's going to take some good faith negotiation from both sides to come to a consensus. Why are evangelicals so divided on immigration? And I know you, you know, you've written a, a book about it, co-authored a book about it. I know you speak to church groups all the time and so forth. You know, is, is it a, a matter of discipleship that's not taking place? Or is it a matter of where evangelicals get their news? Or is it just pastors don't really talk about it that much? I mean, wh- wh- why do you think we're so divided on this issue? Yeah, I, th- I actually think it's kind of all of the above. Um, I would say one factor is relatively few evangelicals have a biblically informed view of this issue. And that is by their own admission. LifeWay Research did a poll a few years back and asked people, well, what's the most important factor influencing your view on the arrival of immigrants into your community? And this is a poll of of evangelical Christians, not the American population overall. Among evangelical Christians, only 12% said the most important factor influencing my views is the Bible. Uh, By definition, evangelicals are supposed to say that the Bible is the most important authority for everything, basically. And, you know, at least should know that that's the right answer, even if it's not fully true. You expect more people to, you know, when the Bible is one of the choices on the survey question, to check the box that says the Bible. But actually, um, the Bible, my local church, the views of national Christian leaders, those choices combined were selected less often than the media. So I do think one huge challenge is that we're being discipled overall by your favorite television channel or social media, which is probably even worse. Um, No fact-checking standards whatsoever, instead of by God's word and by the authority of a local church. Though I would add that sometimes the local church has been, you know, I think afraid to engage the topic precisely because they know that there will be pushback by people who watch cable news seven nights a week what I've found, though, is, I mean, I've spoken in dozens of churches on this topic, is if we keep the focus on the Bible, and the Bible has so much to say relevant to this topic. I mean, the Hebrew word for an immigrant, the Hebrew word ger, is, appears 92 times in the Old Testament. Like This is actually a pretty frequent theme. and There's a lot in the New Testament as well. When we focus there, and then when we address some of the misconceptions there are, you know, around, well, why don't those people just come legally? helping people understand how our current immigration legal system works and that the vast majority of immigrants here unlawfully would have been thrilled to have come legally, but didn't have that option. And it wasn't a matter of waiting their turn. They, they didn't qualify to even stand in the line. And yet if they managed to get here other than lawfully, we basically rewarded them with a job, which was, you know, for most of them, there's something persecution or other dynamics, but for most it's an economic, an, an economic dynamic that is leading them to come. So I think addressing the facts Uh, addressing what the Bible says. And then the other factor that's really important is relationship. I mean, I, I, I graduated from college in 2006 and moved into a neighborhood where most of my neighbors were immigrants from one country or another. And a lot of them had legal status. A lot of them came as refugees, resettled by World Relief. But a lot of other ones were not legally in the United States. And I was personally really, you know, trying to figure out what to think about that as a Christian. It led me back to the Bible. I'm I'm wrestling on, with all these commands to love and welcome immigrants on one hand, but with Romans chapter 13, be subject to the governing authorities on another, and really trying to figure out, well, can I do both of those things? And 
I personally came to the conclusion, and you know, I think World Relief certainly has, and a lot of other evangelical ministries and, and organizations, is that you know, yes, we can love and welcome immigrants on a personal, on a church level, and we should, and we should share the gospel. Although many of these people are already very strong Christians and might share the gospel right back with you, back at you, but we should also address the systemic problems in our immigration system. That um, we can do that in a way that honors the law, that is not just dismissing the violation of law but also is compassionate, also will keep families together. And I, I'm always, you know, again, I'm kind of an eternal optimist. I think that most evangelicals, when they think through that, are are comfortable with that. And I've seen that in local churches. I, what I miss so much about in the midst of this pandemic is, you know, I only speak to people over Skype or Zoom for the most part. And I miss speaking to churches and seeing people who start with their arms kind of crossed and, you know, just clearly unhappy to even be hearing about immigrants in church. And then they slowly you know, you can see on their faces that they're thinking about this in some new ways. And that is, I mean, that's what keeps me motivated in this work. And I really do believe that there's a lot of potential for common ground solutions if we can just have a a reasonable civil conversation that starts with the Bible. For pastors, churches, or evangelicals in general, uh, what resources does World Relief or Evangelical Immigration Table have uh, for anyone who wants to learn more about this? Yeah, I appreciate you asking that. So we've got a bunch of resources, really, with both uh, both those organizations. So worldrelief.org. Um, actually, well, if you go to welcomingthestranger.com, it's kind of a jump to some of the resources we have, both the Welcoming the Stranger book that my colleague Jenny and I co-authored, as well as a, a free um, small group guide that you can download. It's got like little short videos as well as readings to do. We found that's useful for adult education classes as well. And then the Evangelical Immigration Table also has a whole bunch of resources, um, which guides for pastors who want to preach on this, sample sermons, sermon illustrations, outlines. There's a, a Bible reading guide from uh, it's on YouVersion's Bible app, but it's called the I Was a Stranger Challenge. So it's we've been doing that um, like almost a decade now, but basically 40 Bible verses that relate in one way or another to the topic of immigration. And the challenge is read one verse per day, which, you know, if it's controversial in your church to be asked to read a Bible verse every day. I don't know what kind of church you're at, but um, you know that shouldn't be controversial for evangelical Christians. But we found it's a really great tool that really people's, it's kind of like the scales come off their eyes and say, wow, I had no idea the Bible spoke to this. And it turns out the Bible speaks to this so significantly. And, and then we also have a lot of advocacy resources, um, both at worldrelief.org slash advocate and on the Evangelical Immigration Table website. Right now we're you know, we're, we have a sign-on letter to senators and members of Congress urging them to act uh, on a bipartisan basis to pass immigration reforms, especially for DREAMers, but for the broader undocumented immigrant population as well, along the lines of that restitution-based reform that, that I described. Matthew Sorens, thanks for joining the Protestants in Politics podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Nat. Thanks for listening. This episode was recorded on February 3rd. Also check out the Protestants and Politics newsletter. You can find more information at my website, napnasworth.com.